Chapter 4, Part 2 of The Miracles of Our Lord This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Miracles of Our Lord by George MacDonald Chapter 4, Miracles of Healing Unsolicited, Part 2 in the very next case, we find that Jesus will not admit the cause of the man's condition, blindness from his birth, to be the sin of either the man himself or of his parents. The probability seems, to judge from their behaviour in the persecution that followed, that both the man and his parents were people of character, thought and honourable prudence. He was born blind, Jesus said, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. What works, then? The work of creation, for one, rather than the work of healing. The man had suffered nothing in being born blind. God had made him only not so blessed as his fellows, with the intent of giving him equal faculty and even greater enjoyment afterwards, with the honour of having been employed for the revelation of his works to men. In him, Jesus created sight before men's eyes. For, as at the first God said, Let there be light, so the work of God is still to give light to the world, and Jesus must work his work, and be the light of the world, light in all its degrees and kinds, reaching into every corner where every work may be done, arousing sleepy hearts and opening blind eyes. Jesus saw the man the disciples asked their question, and he had no sooner answered it than he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Why this mediating clay? Why the spittle and the touch? Because the man who could not see him must yet be brought into sensible contact with him, must know that the healing came from the man who touched him. Our Lord took pains about it, because the man was blind. And so for the man's share in the miracle, having blinded him a second time, as it were, with clay, he sent him to the pool to wash it away. Clay and blindness should depart together by the act of the man's faith. It was as if the Lord said, I blinded thee. Now, go and see. Here, then, are the links of the chain by which the Lord bound the man to himself. The voice, if heard by the man, which defended him and his parents from the judgment of his disciples. The assertion that he was the light of the world, as something which others had and the blind man only knew as not possessed by him. The sound of the spitting on the ground, the touch of the speaker's fingers, the clay on his eyes, the command to wash, the journey to the pool, the laving water, the astonished sight. He went on his way, therefore, and washed, and came seeing. But who can imagine, save in a conception only less dim than the man's blindness, the glory which burst upon him when, as the restoring clay left his eyes, the light of the world invaded his astonished soul? The very idea may well make one tremble. Blackness of darkness, not an invading stranger, 
but the home companion always there, the negation never understood because the assertion was unknown, creation not erased and treasured in the memory, but to his eyes uncreated, blackness of darkness, the glory of the celestial blue, the towers of the great Jerusalem dwelling in the awful space, the room, the life, the tenfold glorified being, any wonder might follow on on such a wonder. And the whole vision was as fresh as if he had that moment been created, the first of men. But the best remained behind. A man had said, I am the light of the world. And lo, here was the light of the world. The word had been vague as a dark form in the darkness, but now the thing itself had invaded his innermost soul. But the face of the man who was this light of the world he had not seen. The creator of his vision he had not beheld. But he believed in him, for he defended him from the same charge of wickedness from which Jesus had defended him. Give God the praise, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. God heareth not sinners, he replied, and this man hath opened my eyes. It is no wonder that when Jesus found him and asked him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He should reply, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? He was ready. He had only to know which was he, that he might worship him. Here at length was the light of the world before him. The man who had said, I am the light of the world. And straight away the world burst upon him in light. Would this man ever need further proof that there was indeed a God of men? I suspect he had a grander idea of the Son of God than any of his disciples as yet. The would-be refutations of experience, for, since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind, the objections of the religious authorities, this man is not of God because he keepeth not the Sabbath day, endless possible perplexities of the understanding and questions of the how and the why could never touch that man to the shaking of his confidence. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. The man could not convince the Jews that Jesus must be a good man. Neither could he doubt it himself, whose very being, body and soul and spirit had been enlightened and glorified by him. With light in his eyes, in the brain, in the heart, light permeating and unifying his physical and moral nature, asserting itself in showing the man to himself one whole, how could he doubt? The miracles were for the persons on whom they passed. To the spectators they were something, it is true, but they were of unspeakable value to, and of endless influence upon, their subjects. The true mode in which they reached others was through the heels themselves, and the testimony of their lives would go far beyond the testimony of their tongues. Their tongues could but witness to a fact, their lives could witness to a truth. In this miracle, as in all the rest, Jesus did in little the great work of the Father. For how many more are they to whom God has given the marvel of vision than those blind whom the Lord enlightened? 
The remark will sound feeble and far-fetched to the man whose familiar spirit is that Mephistopheles of the commonplace. He who uses his vision only for the care of his body or the indulgence of his mind, how should he understand the gift of God in its marvel? But the man upon whose soul the grandeur and glory of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the fountains of water have once arisen, will understand what a divine invention, what a mighty gift of God, is this very common thing these eyes to see with, that light which enlightens the world, this sight which is the result of both. He will understand what a believer the man born blind must have become, yea, how the mighty inburst of splendour might render him so capable of believing that nothing should be too grand and good for him to believe thereafter, not even the doctrine hardest to commonplace humanity, though the most natural and reasonable to those who have beheld it that the God of light is a faithful, loving, upright, honest, and self-denying being, yea, utterly devoted to the uttermost good of those whom he has made. Such is the Father of lights, who enlightens the world and every man that cometh into it. Every pulsation of light on every brain is from him. Every feeling of law and order is from him. Every hint of right, every desire after the truth, Whatever we call aspiration, all logging for the light, every perception that this is true, that that ought to be done, is from the Father of lights. His infinite and varied light gathered into one point, for how shall we speak of all these things if we do not speak in figures? Concentrated and embodied in Jesus became the light of the world. For the light is no longer only diffused, but in him man beholds the light and whence it flows. Not merely is our chamber enlightened, but we see the lamp. And so we turn again to God, the Father of lights, yea, even of the light of the world. Henceforth we know that all the light, wherever diffused, has its centre in God, as the light that enlightened the blind man flowed from its centre in Jesus. In other words, we have a glimmering, faint human perception of the absolute's glory. We know what God is in recognizing him as our God. Jesus did the works of the Father. The next miracle, recorded by St. Luke alone, is the cure of the man with the dropsy, wrought also upon the Sabbath, but in the house of one of the chief of the Pharisees. Thither our Lord had gone to an entertainment, apparently large, for the following parable is spoken to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief rooms. Footnote 1. Not rooms, but reclining places at the table. Hence the possibility, at least, is suggested that the man was one of the guests. No doubt their houses were more accessible than ours, and it was not difficult for one uninvited to make his way in especially upon occasion of such a gathering. But I think the word translated before him means opposite to him at the table, and that the man was not too ill to appear as a guest. The took him and healed him and let him go of our translation is against the notion rather, but merely from its indefiniteness being capable of meaning that he sent him away. But such is not the meaning of the original. That merely implies that he took him 
went to him and laid his hands upon him, thus connecting the cure with himself, and then released him, set him free, took his hands off him, turning at once to the other guests and justifying himself by appealing to their own righteous conduct towards the ass and the ox. I think the man remained reclining at the table to enjoy the appetite of health at a good meal, if indeed the gladness of the relieved breath, the sense of lightness and strength, the consciousness of a restored obedience of body, not to speak of the presence of him who had cured him, did not make him too happy to care about his dinner. I come now to the last of the group, exceptional in its nature, inasmuch as it was not the curing of a disease or natural defect, but the reparation of an injury, or hurt at least, inflicted by one of his own followers. This miracle is also recorded by St. Luke alone. The other evangelists relate the occasion of the miracle, but not the miracle itself. They record the blow, but not the touch. I shall not therefore compare their accounts, which have considerable variety, but no consistency. I shall confine myself to the story as told by St. Luke. Peter, intending, doubtless, to cleave the head of a servant of the high priest who had come out to take Jesus, with unaccustomed hand, probably trembling with rage, and perhaps with fear, missed his well-meant aim, and only cut off the man's ear. Jesus said, Suffer ye thus far. I think the word should have a point of interrogation after them, to mean, Is it thus far ye suffer? Is this the limit of your patience? But I do not know. With the words, he touched his ear and healed him. Hardly had the wound reached the true sting of its pain before the gentle hand of him whom the servant had come to drag to the torture dismissed the agony as if it had never been. Whether he restored the ear or left the loss of it for a reminder to the man of the part he had taken against his Lord and the return the Lord had made him, we do not know. Neither do we know whether he turned back ashamed and contrite, now that in his own person he had felt the life that dwelt in Jesus, or followed out the capture to the end. Possibly the blow of Peter was the form which the favour of God took, preparing the way, like the blindness from birth, for the glory that was to be manifested in him. But the Lord would countenance no violence done in his defence. They might do to him as they would. If his father would not defend him, neither would he defend himself. Within sight of the fearful death that awaited him, his heart was no whit hardened to the pain of another. Neither did it make any difference that it was the pain of an enemy, even an enemy who was taking him to the cross. There was suffering, here was healing. He came to do the works of him that sent him. He did good to them that hated him, for his father is the saviour of men, saving them out of their distresses. End of chapter 4, part 2